Life groups are a place that can help you navigate the highs and the lows in life. They're a place where you can feel cared for, a place where you can be heard. And likewise, life groups are a place that you can listen to and you can care for others. If you're interested in joining, visit our website. We'll help you take the next step. We look forward to connecting with you. It has been great being back together again for worship. I didn't know how much I missed it and missing you. None of us really know how long we're gonna be doing some version of social distancing. And so rather than stay isolated, we wanted to stay connected. And certainly we'll continue to do that digitally using all the technology available to us. But what we want to do also is figure out all the ways that we can have proximity to each other. And so to do that, we're certainly complying with all the protocols. But at the same time, we don't want to be so cautious that we become fearful. We want to be faithful. And so part of our faith is finding every way we can, not to work around, but to work through a very difficult situation. And so join us in that, to practice safe distancing and behaviors without robbing ourselves of the joy of being together as God's people. Come visit, come worship, come see what we're doing, and uh, look forward to seeing you when you do that.
Hey there, my name is Scott Schimmel, and I'm so thrilled to be preaching in lieu of Steve. Uh, and, and the conversation I know you've been having has been about the good life. Uh, what does it mean to live a good life? And I think everybody gets a definition of that when they're growing up. Some of it's very specific, like your family told you. This is what it means for us to live well. This is what the Schimmels do. This is what the Mitchells, this is what the, the Smiths do. But most of us just get that sort of implicitly. It's a message that we uh, are soaked in throughout our childhood, throughout watching our, our parents or our extended family. We get to kind of see what does it mean to live a good life? And there's different versions of it. There's different versions of it. The world is telling us what the good life is. That's have more. Have more people impressed with you. Have more power and control to make sure that what you want is exactly what happens. That's what advertising does. We want to share with you what the good life is. And if you buy this product, buy this service, if you had more of this or less of this, your life will be better. Your life will be good. I remember when I was growing up, there was a, a key moment, and I'm driving home, getting picked up by my mom from third grade right after school. And she asked me, how was school today? And I said something like, gee, mom, when I get older, I really want to become a teacher, just like Mr. Bailey. This teacher that I had was just this amazing teacher that changed my life and opened up, kind of opened me up to the world. And she said, with all great intentions, she said, oh, honey, that's not going to work for you. I said, why not? She said, you need to earn money like your dad does to be able to provide for a family. And if I, you know, being nine years old, I just kind of said, oh, okay, yeah, that's, that makes sense. And I watched, and I, I think for the next few years, looked around, okay, if, if that's not it, what is it? And I saw in my family people in business, finance, accounting, and I got the message. This is what it means to live a good life. Be responsible. Be successful. Others, especially now, would say the good life is a life of survival, especially if you're under threat, if you feel like you're uh, in danger, if you don't have enough money, you don't have a job, you don't have housing, your health is at risk. The good life is just kind of getting through it, is surviving. Another version of that could be uh, we want you to be uh, responsible. There's expectations people have from you. You've got to take care of someone else. You've got to make sure you do what's expected of you. You've got to take over the business. You've got to step in line. That's what it means to live a good life. There's other versions, though, too. Yeah, successful life. Go and earn money. Uh, have an impressive life. Go and do something that's impressive to others, that makes other people say, wow, look at him, look at her. There's certainly a, a, a version of the good life that's emerged over the years where maybe it used to be, hey, be responsible, take care of your family, uh, mow your lawn, but then it transitioned and it turned into make sure you have a happy life. And it's never really defined what a happy life is, but the assumption is that a happy life includes and involves having more of what you want and less of what you don't. And maybe above that, there's a fulfilling life, a life where what you do makes you feel good inside. You get to use your talents and your strengths. What I want to say, and I think the scriptures teach, is that the good life, according to God, is a life that's meaningful. And it's actually a life that is not about you, and it's not really about you being responsible or successful or impressive. It's not about you having fulfillment on the inside. It's not about you being happy necessarily, although you might experience some of those things along the way. A good life is a meaningful one where you recognize that your life is here for the sake of someone else, for the sake of the greater good, for the sake of God's purposes.
I want to introduce you to one of my favorite characters in the Bible, a guy named Nehemiah. And in the chronology of where Nehemiah shows up in the Bible, uh, 1500 BC is when Moses kind of brings the people out of Egypt into the promised land and establishes a relationship between uh, God and his people and the people in their land and everything's right. And after a while, though, the people, the people of God, say, hey, this abstract, invisible God uh, doesn't work for us. Every other country, every other people has a king. We want a king. And then there are these other characters that emerge into the biblical story. Saul, King Saul, King David, which is probably like the peak of the whole story. And then uh, uh, David's son, Solomon. And that's where things start to decline. Uh, many hundreds of years later, it goes so poorly, the people stop obeying God. They stop uh, living out God's purposes for them over centuries. God continues to warn, someday, 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 I'm going to let you have your way. I'm going to remove myself from you. If you want to do things your way, fine, have at it. And in 587 BC, uh, several hundred years after the whole thing started, the Babylonians come in and sack the country and the capital and kill a bunch of people and scatter them across the world. A few years later, the Assyrians, another big, bad, evil empire, comes and takes over Babylon and has a subtle shift in policy that's really significant. And it's no longer send people out around the world. It's actually, hey, yeah, we'll let you return to your provinces, to your territory. We'll allow you to build up economy. It was really an economic play. We want you to go back and start earning money so that the, the Assyrian Empire can have more money. And here we're introduced to Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah has a role, a very influential role in the Assyrian kingdom, the Persian kingdom. He, it says in, the, in his memoirs, his journal in Nehemiah chapter 1, that he is the cupbearer to the king. And a, a cupbearer in that time, uh, it, you might imagine if you've seen movies about uh, a royal court, it's the person who drinks the wine and tastes the food before the king does to make sure that there's no poison. But it was much more than just making sure that the cupbearer didn't die. The cupbearers actually had this responsibility to manage kind of the, the banquet of ceremonies. And uh, there was a sizable budget because it was, you, you got to keep the, the king's table stocked and well-fed. And, and many people over the years in ancient times who were cupbearers were thought and considered to be the right-hand man, the second in power, the COO, the CFO of the kingdom, of the empire. And that's Nehemiah. And if you picture that, you imagine that, Nehemiah is a Jewish person living in another empire, but he's got a really, really cushy job. He's got security insofar that he doesn't die of poison. He's got security. He's got job security. He's got status. People are impressed with him. He's got wealth. And he's got a life that's a really good life where most of us would say, that's amazing. As, a, as an exile from another uh, territory, from another people, to have that amount of influence. Most of us, most of you and I, if we heard a friend who's doing that well, would say, good for you, you're blessed. What a good life Nehemiah has. But that's not necessarily the way Nehemiah sees his own life. Because he wants to be a part of something bigger and something great. I'm going to share with you four key points from Nehemiah's life that are instructive for me and for you, for what God would say to us about what it means to good to be and live a good life. The first one that I see in Nehemiah's life, Nehemiah is open. Here's what happens. In the late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, this is Nehemiah speaking, I was at the fortress of Susa. Han and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men 
who had just arrived. And Nehemiah says, I asked them about the Jews who'd returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem because there had been this, these whispers. Now that it was a new policy, you can go back. There were Jews that were going back to Israel. And the whispers, imagine the, the water cooler conversations. There's people returning back to our land. What, it's, the, the hope is arising. What if? What if it's now the time? What if the time is now to rebuild Israel, to rebuild Jerusalem, the capital? What if this is the time for God to return to his people and for the Jewish people to, to rise up again? What if? And this is Nehemiah uh, who wants to hear. I, I want to know the news. What you see in Nehemiah, what I see in Nehemiah is that he is open to what he hears. Maybe you find yourself like me with the constant onslaught of news. Bad news, bad economic news, bad racial injustice news, bad economic, bad health news. It's getting worse and worse. If you're like me, you get a little compassion fatigue, care fatigue. I'm, I'm done being open. I can't stand hearing another piece of news. I can't allow myself to be moved or stirred. But this is what Nehemiah does. Here's the news that he gets. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Here's what Nehemiah does. When he heard this news, he sits down and he weeps. In fact, it says, he, uh, f- for days, he mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Now, I'll admit, a lot of times when I hear bad news, I hear it, I see it on Facebook, I, I watch it on whatever news channel, I get a text, I'm talking to a friend or my wife and I hear, did you hear what happened? How terrible it is? I'm just so tempted to say, so what? I can't handle it. Nehemiah, though, is open. And his openness doesn't respond with, man, what's wrong with those Jews? What's wrong with those people? They don't know how to get back. They don't know how to build a project. They, they can't get anything done. Nehemiah could have, it could have reinforced his own status and helped him realize, I'm fine here. What do I care about what happens there? We're moving on. It's no longer about rebuilding this dead civilization or this dead country. It's about, look at what I've got. I've got to build my career. I've got to build generational wealth here for my next multiple lineage, multiple lines. That's what life is about. But Nehemiah doesn't. He's open. And his openness is a spiritual openness. He sits down and weeps. He fasts and mourns and prays for days and days, giving God the space into his own heart, into his mind. God, what do you think about this? How do I make sense of this terrible news? Nehemiah is open. The second thing that sticks out to me is that Nehemiah allows it to become personal. Here's what happens. We get an insight into how Nehemiah prays because he, he writes it down. He writes out his whole prayer and we still have it uh, two and a half thousand years later. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day. I confess, and here's the key part, I confess that we have sinned against you. Even more, yes, even in my own family and I have sinned against you you. We've sinned terribly, but not obeying you and uh, living out the life that you wanted us to live. That's his prayer. He makes it personal. When we allow our hearts to be open and allow our hearts to be stirred by what other people are suffering with or going through, it's still tempting to not make it personal. Like, well, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. I didn't vote for that. I didn't cause that. I'm living my life over here. 
But when you're doing this kind of work with God, he actually pulls you in. The Spirit of God pulls you in and it becomes personal. I have been a part of this. I've been a part of it. Whether or not I knew it or not, implicitly, I've been a part of this. It's about me just as much as it is about them. Third thing, Nehemiah recognizes that there's something bigger happening than just him and just this moment. Here's how he continues his prayer. He tells God, please remember what you told your servant, Moses. This is what you told Moses. Hey, if you're unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you turn to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you're exiled to the ends of the earth, I'll bring you back to the place I've chosen for my name to be honored. Nehemiah recognizes that what is going on here in this geopolitical moment is a part of a larger story that's been unfolding forever and will continue to unfold. And that's something that happens, the good life according to God. We are brought in to what God is up to, the bigger things, the bigger purpose, the bigger thing that he's up to. And it includes and involves us. When we're part of something bigger, when you and I are part of a bigger cause, trying to solve a problem, trying to fight for something, we start to recognize it's about me because it's personal, but it's not about me because it's bigger than me. And the fourth thing, and maybe the most significant, is that when we're stirred by God, the good life according to God is risky. The good life according to God, as you look through all the scriptures, as you look throughout history, always involves and includes putting ourselves in harm's way. And harm's way might be physical danger, but it also might be a threat to our reputation, a threat to our security, a threat for people understanding us or approving of us. There's a lot of ways that we can be in danger and to be risky, but it always includes, it always includes putting ourselves in harm's way for the sake of the greater good, for what God's up to. Nehemiah, and I would love for you later today as you watch this or tomorrow this week, I'd love for you to read Nehemiah chapter 2 because what Nehemiah is about to do is to approach the king, his boss, the terrorist <laughs> uh, king of a foreign nation, and Nehemiah is going to ask for some time off. Time off from his crucial, critical, vital role as the right-hand man cupbearer to the king. And he asks not just for time off, but time away. And he asks for uh, uh, money and protection. And he puts himself not just in harm's way for the king, but then he ends up going back into uh, the province of Judah in Jerusalem. And if you see the, read the rest of the story, again, over and over and over and over again, his life is in danger. People are trying to discourage him, dissuade him, uh, distract him, speak ill towards him. He's always in harm's way. What does that look like for you and I? There's three people that have meant a lot to me. And they might, if you're a part of La Jolla Community Church and have been for a little bit, you would know these names as well. Number one, the first guy that comes to mind, a guy named John Sunt. John Sunt, who's had a career uh, building companies and investing, and yet on his personal side, went through tragedy and watched his two brothers die tragically from overdose. And John could have, of course, stayed away from that and said, gosh, well, that was those mistakes that they made. But he actually started to move in, in, and ended up creating his own organization to help young people have an opportunity to think about a different kind of life. He created this organization called Natural High. And John could have started an organization and said, hey, good luck with that. Hope you run it well. And he could have felt very good about himself, but he didn't. He continues, even to this day, be in the fight 
of educating kids about alternative ways to avoid a life of addiction, to find a life that's emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually well and healthy. John Sunt puts himself in harm's way. Another guy, Bob Goff, uh, you probably have read his books or seen him speak at La Jolla Community Church before, uh, seen him on a podcast. Bob Goff is, uh, was a construction lawyer who had a friend that took him to India and learned about these young girls that were being harmed in horrific ways. And Bob could have very easily said, that's terrible. That country's got to get their act together. That's awful. I should give a check to an organization that's doing something. But he said, how about we go in? And he ended up going in and quite himself pulling girls out and then helping them find uh, rehab and education. And 20 years into this, he still continues to put himself in harm's way because it's about him and it's about what God's doing. Michelle LeBeau, who's helped found this church, has gone to work for an organization called the San Diego Rescue Mission and become deeply involved in caring for the homeless in our town, in this city. And again, she could very well just kind of do her job and, and uh, uh, feel very good about herself, but she continues to find ways to put herself in harm's way. She's creating a new program to train everyday, ordinary people like you and I to become and learn how to become effective friends and mentors for those who are suffering in, uh, under homelessness and walk with them as they transition and grow and become healthy and their lives uh, to be made whole. Michelle LeBeau is putting herself in harm's way. For me, I know over the years, back to that little third grader who said, I just love teaching and education, but I pursued a path of finance and accounting all through high school and college. I've realized that I, I can't help myself but to be in harm's way. I have to respond to a huge problem that I've seen over the years. That there are students, there are kids that, sure, maybe they're taught how to be academically successful or, or successful in a career, maybe, but they're not taught how to live a meaningful life. All the stuff that we're talking about here. And I've moved not just to, hey, something should be done about that. That's a really sad problem to say, I want to do something. It's about me. It's about what God's doing. And so I've lived the past eight years running this company, trying to get into schools and trying to help students learn how to build meaningful lives. And so how about you? What does that look like for you to allow yourself to be open, to get uh, personal with, with what a problem is, to allow yourself to be stirred and moved, and then to recognize that it's a part of something that God is up to, something bigger than you? And ultimately, what is the step that you could take that would put yourself in harm's way? Would you pray with me? God, uh, a good life according to you is a life that is risky, a life that is about you seeing people who are hurting or afflicted or oppressed or unseen or misunderstood or uh, uh, hungry. Your purposes are about seeing those people and then moving us towards them. And I pray that you would help me and us to be open to what you're doing. I pray that you would give me the courage to take risks Risks of my uh, security and my stability, risk to my reputation, risk to my physical safety for the sake of something that you're up to. And I trust, God, that you're doing that, and I trust that you'll use me in significant ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.